when I ask the room who thinks that their media departments do a good, aggressive job managing the narrative with the media, not a hand in the room went up. Hey, Erica. So we've been back from Nashville and HFMA's annual conference for a while. We are working on some great new content for the blog, for the podcast, but we have something special to share today from the conference. Yeah, on the last day of the conference, very early in the morning for us, uh, we had a Blend Game Live session with Ruth Landy from RAP Medical and our own Sean Stack from the policy team here at HFMA. It was a well-attended session. They had to wheel in more chairs. There were so many people who showed up for this. So that was exciting. Uh, It's always good when people show up to your session. What was your biggest takeaway from the session and kind of the experience of being in the room? Well, I think there's a lot of interest judging from the attendance of the session. I think there's a lot of frustration with the stories that are in the media today. And I think you could see a lot of head nodding as we were going along. One of my big takeaways from it, though, was there was a point in the session, and and you'll hear it in the recording in just a minute, when I asked the room, this is several hundred people, by the way, who thinks that their media departments do a good, aggressive job with managing the narrative with the media? And not a hand in the room went up. I mean, there was one guy did the kind of the universal sign for, eh, um, but not another hand went up. There are a few things you could read into that, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily indicative that the media department is doing a terrible job, right? right. It, it yeah. could just be that's not their focus, or maybe it's something that the people in the room really never thought to think about. Let's say it's a little of both. The people aren't paying attention and haven't thought about it that hard in the past uh, on the finance side of the house, or maybe they don't feel like the narrative is being handled. I think that's also not just necessarily indicative of the media department. I think that's an organizational cultural issue. And I think a lot of hospitals and health systems have gotten ultra conservative with their approach to the media just out of lack of trust over the past few years. And we're seeing the fruits of that now with the types of stories that we're reading. Yeah, we've been working on some new content for the blog, new content for the podcast that will be coming up soon. But in the meantime, we will be sharing today the recording from that session at annual conference. So I think we've all seen headlines like these, and uh, you can imagine what a patient is going to think when they see these stories, uh, which often feature patients that have come through pretty serious health issues and then had high hospital bills to contend with. These anecdotes are real. They're unfortunate. But we all know that's not the norm, and it's not the whole story. But there is a reason that these narratives strike a chord with people. So today we're going to be discussing what healthcare organizations can do to change the narrative. So you've already met our panel, Brad Dennison, Sean Stack, Ruth Landy. Before we get into our discussion, I think it's important to say why we need to change the narrative around these. So Brad, kick us off. What kind of harm does stories like these cause? Yeah, well, I first... I would say that you know we've noticed something in the past year in conversations with members and advisory committees and things like that. One of the things that keeps coming up over and over again is fear of the media. And this is something that we really in the past year started to notice. And 
So I took an interest in it, and to be honest, you know, I came from the media side of things five years ago. I spent 25 years in newspapers, and um, when I came to the healthcare side of things, I was looking at a lot of these stories almost from day one, you know, with intrigue. And the more I learned about healthcare, the more incorrect I realized that some of these stories are. I mean, there's more this week, right? I'm, probably some of you have read that are uh, just getting the narrative wrong and getting the facts wrong. So a lot of this was born in frustration for me, but one of the things I'm really starting to realize is there's such a mountain of these stories out there that patients are making decisions about their healthcare based on the stories that they read. And so it's a narrative that needs to change, and it's one that we're hoping that we can help play some small part in changing. And one of the things that strikes me about these patient stories is that they gloss over things that would actually help somebody. For example, if I were somebody in the situation of the person in the story that I'm reading, there's nothing there for me that's gonna help me out of that situation. Not enough questions get asked in these extreme anecdotes that we read. I would say, and we'll talk a little bit more about this as we go and later, but I would say too that there's more hospitals and health systems can do to control the narrative. And you really gotta get real about the relationships that you're building with local and regional media and how proactive that you're being about it. So Ruth, you are with RIP Medical Debt. RIP has a pretty unique perspective because you deal with both hospitals and patients. Um, And and RIP is in the media quite a bit. So where do you see the disconnect? Yeah, it is. Disconnect is the word because you really, you have on the one hand a media that doesn't really understand the complexities of billing, doesn't tend to look at systemic issues that contribute to the situation that we're in, insurance gaps, you know, who, who's really involved in the, in the system, and tends to blame patient financial distress completely on the provider, on that, you know, big building that everybody can see, that's where it goes. And the thing is, that reality, that frustrating reality, doesn't contradict the other reality, which is that there are a lot of people out there in financial distress, right? Kaiser Family Foundation has a lot of stats out there about this, about people making decisions, not following care recommendations because of fear of the money involved, just delaying care altogether, and we all know what, what that does. So, so I think for providers, and that's what we want to talk about, you don't want to inadvertently contribute to either the misunderstanding or to the suffering. and you really hiding out from the media is not gonna help. There's just so much of this stuff out there. Um, And it is possible, I think it really is, to to have a positive media story about you. I mean, certainly with my organization, RIP Medical Debt, when providers have worked with us and gone public about it, they've been celebrated for community benefits. So I think there are ways to do it, and that's what we wanna explore today. So we're on the last day here, and I don't know if you, like I have, been in conversations over and over and over about how patients don't understand how things are supposed to work. I was in a session yesterday where three of the four panelists were talking about how they'd had a family member in the hospital, and even they had trouble trying to explain and and piece things together for them. And hospitals don't always do a great job of communicating what their patients should know about their financial responsibility. So, Ruth, what are some of the issues that you see when when it comes to, to this kind of communication? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is hospitals have to, when I say hospitals, actually any kind of provider, physician groups, whatever, really need to tackle head on 
this gap, this com communication understanding gap around financial assistance, because that comes up all the time. And so you already have it on your statements, you have it on your website, you know, it's, it's all out there, providers are doing the right thing. But at the same time, patients still don't know. And so I think that's where you've got to reach out to your community groups to get help. And perhaps you've already done that. Use your, your social work department, your nursing department. Those are the trusted people for patients. And make sure that those allies can refer a patient directly to your financial assistance. Don't put the onus on the patient. Patients don't have time. You know, there was a study recently about how much time people are spending like at eight hours a month just trying to coordinate care. They don't have the time or bandwidth to, to also be filling out forms. So to the extent that everybody can do that direct referral, that will help. I would say also, you know, get some feedback. I mean, reach out to a group like Dollar Four. They're out there saying, being a lot of, they're not-for-profit, say a lot of anti-hospital stuff, but they're working with financial assistance programs all around the country. If you reach out and say, tell me how my program compares to other ones in the country, they'll tell you. And finally, if you're using, there's a lot of stuff at this conference about tools, and there are, there's some great technology tools out there. If you're using a presumptive eligibility tool for your financial assistance, which is great, you're probably not actually telling the people who qualify that they got it. So if you think about it, you're doing a great thing for individuals out there, but you're not actually telling them. So it's no wonder that you know patients don't believe you're doing good if they don't even know if they have benefited by your policies. So those are a few things that I can think of. So one of the recurring themes in some of these stories is that it's always kind of a, a patient, something bad happens, they get a big bill, and then we don't know what happens next, and then all of a sudden there's some action. They're sued, they get you know, collections, whatever the case may be, and these, there are these big gaps in the storyline. And, and we don't know, just from reading these stories, what happens in, in these gaps. We don't know what patients did, we don't know what the hospital did in this time period. But Sean, what should the hospitals be doing in this time period to engage with their patients? Yeah, so you all know that there's a, there's a big gap between when the patient comes into schedule care, gets the care furnished, or the item or service furnished, and then gets, finally gets the bill. And for most patients, including myself when I'm a patient, I'm wondering what the hospital is doing, why it's taking three to four to five months to get that patient bill back. So I think what we're seeing and what we're working with our members on is kind of educating that patient in a very simplified way on what that billing process looks like. You know, you're gonna leave today, but just know that you might not get a bill for a few months because it has to leave our facility, go to your insurance. If you have a secondary payer, it needs to go to the secondary payer, and then you'll get an EOB from that payer, from both of those payers, and probably a final bill whenever your cycle is. So just that angst of letting them know that there could be a delay because the insurance company or their, or their health plan needs to make those decisions to process those claims is very helpful and takes a lot of anxiety off that patient. It also can take some anxiety off that patient in scheduling and following through with their follow-up care because the chances are they're gonna have follow-up appointments within that time frame. So getting them back into the facility to seek that follow-up care that they need so they don't circumvent that and, and get freaked out about the financial burden that they don't know they have yet. You know when you're stressed, your, your mind plays games on you and makes things worse many times than it is. I'm kind of walking that patient through that process, either through 
pre-recorded videos that you can put on your websites or run videos in your, in your waiting rooms, just information that you can get out there to explain to them what that process is. So I, I don't think I need to tell anybody in this room, you're really involved in helping our members understand price transparency, surprise billing. I'm betting um, at least a few have attended some, some sessions and, and heard you speak about these topics. But how should our members, how should the people in this room and the people they work with be talking about things like this with their patients? So I don't need to tell hospitals that price transparency and No Surprise Act has done a lot for freaking patients out, right? Um, so you're giving them a cost estimate, a good faith estimate, which I know we're all in support of. I, I'm certainly in support of being upfront on the financial requirements and the liability that a patient has upfront. But I think along with those price estimates, along with those tools, along with those good faith estimates, there needs to be a clear delivered message that you as the provider, the patient can come to you to talk through those good faith estimates and look for financial assistance or payment plans so they know that that support is there and that you're not just trying to collect that money from them, but you're also trying to help them with that potential medical bad debt that they may have in the future or that medical debt they have in the future. So I think that's key is delivering what charity care policies and financial policies that you have and making sure that that's clear to the individual when you provide them with that good faith estimate because you don't want to freak them out so they don't come back for care, right? We do a class with chief medical officers, and I always, I always tell them that revenue cycle and patient access are the first people who see your patient when they schedule appointments at a, at a facility, and they're the last people who see your patient when they leave the facility before they come for that follow-up care. So we need to make sure that, like Ruth said, those pathways and communications are linked now between those clinical folks and those financial folks. Anything to add to that, Ruth? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what's so heartbreaking. I mean, I, I did RevCycle for, for decades and loved the hospitals, loved the physicians, and ultimately, you know, care is trust. And I think that's what's so hard about this situation is, you know, what fear does and what that does to the trust that the caring clinicians have with a patient. If the patients believe that the hospital's out to get you, how can you actually get proper care? And so, yeah, I mean, that, that's the problem. It's so complex. You, you know, you don't want a, a doctor no matter how smart they believe they are trying to also handle billing. It's too much. Um, but you also got to get that message out that there, uh, there is assistance. Do it electronically without the patient involved if you can, but just doing everything you can to show that you care, that you are there to help. I think that's, that's vital. Otherwise, it, it destroys your mission of caring. So if you were in the Healthcare 2030 session yesterday, then this will look familiar to you. Um, this is from a survey that HFMA did of, of leaders in healthcare. How good are hospitals at communicating with patients in the community at large? We had a really good conversation about it. But, you know, I think reaching out to individual patients at the point of service, that's really important, but it doesn't necessarily change your system, right? It, it's got to be something bigger than that. It's, and it's necessary to interact with the media because as we see from those headlines we looked at at the beginning of the session, you might be the next one. So, so Brad, um, you've spent a lot of time talking with members about this. What kinds of efforts are healthcare organizations making? What do you think they should be doing? Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about this. I said this on the last podcast that came out last week as well. If I could stand neutrally in the middle of this and look at both sides, look at the healthcare side 
and look at the journalism side of this, you're not so different. You're very similar personalities. You're doing things for very similar reasons. You know, you, probably a lot of you are in the career that you're in because you feel good about it, because you have a heart for community service, because you're providing a service to the community that's so important. I'm sure it's a source of pride. And it's the same thing for journalists. They, they took their path because they have a heart for community service and they want to inform people. They want to stand up for people who can't stand up for themselves. One of the things that I hear a lot is, well, they're just making things up or they're just doing it for clicks. I hear it all the time since I started writing the blog. I got an email from across the country and I, and I hear that. And it's just not true. Not, and when I say legitimate news organizations, we're talking about your local newspapers, regional newspapers, broadcasters, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. These are all legitimate news organizations that don't always get it right. And so, you know, it's interesting that uh, a few months ago, I think it was late last year, the BBC did a report on itself. And the leadership of the BBC said, we're curious, is there bias present? You know, are we as unbiased as we think we are? And so they brought in this outside firm to take a look at them. And they did like a 60 or 70 page study, which you're welcome to read. We'll actually do a podcast about it, I think, in the next few months. But one of the things that they found in this is not so much. And uh, one of the big things that they found is there are preconceived notions that reporters bring to the table that they don't even question. And that happens with all of us, right? Unconscious bias is there in all of us. There's been a lot of talk about it over the last couple of years. But I wanna throw some words at you because uh, I think this will resonate. One of the, it, with the BBC, one of the big words uh, that had a negative connotation to it, so when reporters heard this word, they instantly assumed it was negative, was the word debt. Debt is not, not necessarily a negative thing. When, I think when you think of it in, from a consumer standpoint, I think we associate that with potentially negative things. But in your business, uh, debt is good, right? It, it, can, it can be bad. You can be over leveraged. But for the most part, it's good. It's, it's fuel for the business. It's fuel for the economy, whatever. So, you know, and there are other words. I want to say this one at Sean. Nonprofit is, is synonymous with charity, right? And, uh, but, but taking on a very non-negative connotation now with news articles and the targeting of nonprofit hospitals, that to me, and we haven't rehearsed this, but you saying nonprofit makes those articles flash up to me. It really does, because we're, nonprofits are under attack in the press and federally, right? Yeah, no, and it's, it, yeah, again, it's sort of heartbreaking because... Yeah. Nonprofit hospitals, we you know know are going out there into areas that you know for-profit hospitals probably don't want to be offering things like you know uh, adolescent behavioral health, all sorts of things that are really really needed, and that's not necessarily where you know there's no profit there. But yeah, I think there is a lack of understanding, and um, there's usually a thing about taxpayers and all that kind of stuff. Again, this is all. Get to the part where you reach out to media because <laughs> this is, you know, it, it takes a long time. This is not the kind of conversation you can teach somebody in one conversation, right? I mean. Yeah, I think, um, I think that unconscious bias is real. I think yeah. that confirmation bias is real. So if you look at these stories, let's just say it's a story about one of those extreme patient anecdotes, right? Which every single one of us could go out and find something on the other side of things where somebody's life was saved and they're so grateful to the health system and everything, you know, and everything was fine and they got the assistance that they needed. But the other things that get thrown in there, CEO salary, right? Is just this random fact that gets thrown in there or, well, nonprofit, that nonprofit storyline, they're nonprofit, so they should be providing free care. And they, 
they avoid all these taxes. You know, that's usually an element to these stories. There's a lot of these random elements that get thrown in there. And I think that's just, you know, sometimes when you get deep into any of us, deep into looking at something, excited about something, feel like you're really onto something, everything kind of takes your point of view. Everything, you're a hammer and everything's a nail, right? So here's what I would do. Does anybody in here think their system is really aggressive about cultivating media relationships? I saw one. Nobody in that 1% I saw one this. So, you know, that's part of the problem, right? And if you look at the media landscape right now, it kind of looks like to us, Erica, like whoever gets to a reporter's inbox first wins. Nursing unions are killing it right now. And while hospitals, I think, for the most part, are, are not cultivating those relationships and not being more aggressive with the media. And let me tell you, if you start letting, identifying the right reporter, and look, you're not going to cultivate a relationship with the New York Times unless you're in New York, right? And you hope they never come calling. But you know who the local media is, and I think it's so important to develop those relationships, bring them in. It's so easy to demonize a $4 billion health system. It gets really hard to demonize people you know. And once you start looking at things up close, I think you see something different. I think the other thing is we deal with media departments all the time and don't have a lot of high praise for them. You would think at HFMA, boy, we'd get right in and get questions answered and all that. It's just as hard for us. So, you know, you think about how hard it is for a journalist to get answers and get responses to things. It's, it's, it's difficult by design, I think. So that's a problem. But look out there at what's getting reported and assume that could happen to you and what can you do proactively to bring somebody in and talk about the new price transparency regulations and talk about surprise billing. I mean, these are things that are being covered every single day. You know, bring a reporter in, let them sit with the CFO or head of revenue cycle or whoever's relevant and talk through what do the regulations look like? What does it mean to you? What are you going to do to meet or exceed those regulations and make it a storyline. It's a thread that you pull through over time. It's not kind of a one and done. It's a thing you talk about and you're going to have success stories and things like that. I think that's what it's going to take for hospitals to change the narrative is to build those relationships one at a time. Yeah. And I would add, I mean, you know, I don't have the media experience that that Brad does, but I've worked in large not-for-profits. And actually, there's a lot of work just internally you need to do in your organization. We were just talking uh, amongst us about whether typically your public affairs, media, whoever it is at your hospital, actually knows your head of RevCycle internally. Do they know each other? You know, do you have a relationship there um, that usually the, the media person focuses on a you know, a couple of physicians putting out some stories there. And, you know, what's heartbreaking about some of these stories, too, that you've seen, there are actual employees of your organization, a scheduler, uh, you know, not necessarily billing staff, but, you know, nurses, doctors, who believe that their own organization is doing something wrong. I mean, at least your own employees you can try to reach out to and explain and break down those those silos. Because, you know, everybody talks about staffing. If your, you know, clinicians feel that they are working for an organization that's not ethical because they don't actually understand how to help patients through their own organization, this is a problem you can tackle. You know, this is part of getting all of your staff excited and happy about what the organization is doing uh, in terms of financials for the patient. So, so that's, an, I would say, you have to do both. You have to reach out, but you can also do a lot of work internally. And that'll help you, regardless of whether there's ever a story or not, because it'll help your employee satisfaction. I think that's another important thing to remember here is that sort of the internal external communications because you have all these potential champions in your hospital, right? You may have 
you know, 10, 15, 20,000 employees who are coming in every day and, and walking out? And do they know their lines? And what is your hospital doing to kind of talk to them about new regulations or the things? Because you all know it. You're at home. At, you'll be at the 4th of July. You'll be at a barbecue. And you'll be talking healthcare with people, right, once they find out what you do. And, um, you know, do, do employees know their lines? What are they saying in the community as well? So, I, you know, I believe this, this slide, 60% of people, we're okay at communications. I think it's, a, it's an area where, that needs a, a lot greater focus with a lot of finance involvement. So I'll just share a little anecdote. As we were preparing for this session, I got to talking with a friend of mine who works in hospital media. And I asked her, do you know your RevCycle leaders at your organization? And her response was, what's RevCycle? I mean, you're chuckling, but, you know, and I, and I asked her, you know, do you think that, that you would ever, you know, work with your local media to do a story about things like patient payment and, you know, how it works and all that? And she said, absolutely not. And my question is, why? Why not? Because, you know, I meet people here and people want to talk about this stuff. Um, and I, I hope I can say this but without naming names, but we ran into somebody here who's organization had been named in one of these stories and as soon as it came up he said yeah let's talk about that let's let's get in a conversation about it I want to get to the bottom of this I want to talk about it and I think you know those conversations happen one-on-one -on -one, but I think they need to happen on the larger scale yeah I agree yeah. Erica I think the, the the days of being remaining silent and just thinking it'll blow over is has gone and I think I think that we are grasping for market share and, and to promote services in our communities with trust because there's so much disruption out there that can snag a lot of our patients who have insurance, who have those more profitable service lines that, that are now provided nationally or virtually or by disruption. Um, I think we need to start having those conversations of the things like, like you're saying, Ruth, that we do well and that we've just never touted that we do well, right? Um, I think, I think the, 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 the narrative has to change. I, I really do. We need to promote ourselves more, and, and we've never really had to before because we've always been the only player in town, and yeah. we're not that anymore. Yeah, and when you get that feedback, you know, also it can really, you know, help with us. I mean, one of the articles recently talked about the policies, you know, those policies you have out about financial assistance, which often look like they were written by lawyers. They are, you know, painful to read. Um, and I understand that, in fact, you're audited on those policies. And so you, you know, that's why, you know, um, not dissing lawyers too much, but that's why they get involved. Sure, those policies don't necessarily match practice, but that's, that's not okay. Make sure those policies do match practice. Try to make sure they're actually humanized a bit. Um, and also know that no person other than the reporter is probably reading them, but at least make sure that they correspond to practice because um, make it real, make it human, add some humor. I mean, there is so much complexity in this, right? We, we have problems, I, you know, as a longtime RevCycle person, I'm always talking about this stuff, but you know, in the end, you have to, you have to laugh and, and acknowledge how insanely complex it is. Because then, again, humor brings people together. Because otherwise people, something's mysterious, they immediately, there's no trust. It's like, what are these codes? They're out to get me, right? So you just have to, like, start to, to you know, break down those barriers and say, yeah, it's crazy. It makes no sense. But, you know, I agree with you. Yeah, and I think, I think thinking about those policies more transparently, right, make them accessible. I don't think a lot of people are going to look for them. I think there are reporters that may go look for them, but 
you know, are you checking the box and doing the right thing and making them available? Um, you know, we did the Kaiser blog a few months ago that was all about hospital policies around collections, and they missed the point with that, that, you know, if you've ever run a business, you know, lots of times policies are there for extreme cases, or I can do it, I may choose not to. But, you know, it may be a good time to see if those things line up. And if your current policy is to sue patients, but you haven't done it for five years, and it's not really kind of your current practice, I mean, maybe you take that off the books. And uh, But again, I think, what's the user experience going to your website if you're looking for financial assistance policies or some of the things out there that the media may be looking for? It's a good self-check. Who's doing things right? And, and the people who are doing things right, what are they doing? So I, th- I think that the audit processes that you put in place at a six-month marker or a 12-month marker to see who's going to bad debt and really looking at those patients that are going to bad debt and seeing if there's some lessons learned in there or looking at your bad debt vendors and seeing who's getting, who they're getting eligible for Medicaid or Medicare or charity care, the ones that you're missing at the hospital. Auditing those processes, I think, is a good practice to see you know, what you're getting wrong, to try to get ahead of that and focus on those people that are seeping through for some reason, whatever it is, um, because everyone has those populations, right? Um, maybe you're located on an interstate and you're, you're not used to a certain population of folks who are coming through if they don't live in your community. And those, those patient financial um, policies and charity care policies just don't resonate with them. Knowing that and looking at that information, I think, is important. Those are some of the things that I, I, I see folks really focusing on. We're beginning to start a health equity project here at HFMA with several of our member hospitals, and we're looking for a few more. And one of the things we're doing through that initiative is we're taking and screening um, hospital members, charity policies and financial policies, through a health equity lens and making sure that they are written appropriately and are really reaching out to those biopic patients that the the hospitals have. My feeling is that we're not going to find a lot of improvements to those policies that need to be made, but my strong feeling is we are going to fall in a lot of improvements that need to be made on the back-end audits to make sure that the intent of those policies is being followed through the patient encounter system and, and, and folks aren't being missed. So I think those are some things that we can look at now. Um, now that we have more AI technology, now that we have more things that we can automate and, and do smarter searches on, we can get to those troubled um, areas of our revenue cycle and billing and really start to focus on them. One of the things I've, I was talking to Epic, I had um, dinner with a couple of vice presidents of Ed Epic out in San Diego a few months ago and I was saying, do you guys see something coming out that will go through a medical record and compare the bill before it drops as a final and make sure no charges are missed or you know, charges are not on there inappropriately. And they're like, we're thinking through that. We're, so I think getting the accuracy of our bills um, more correct going out the door for both, I think we have actually more under, underbilled services on our bills than we have overbilled. But no one's going to focus on underbilled, right? If you go to the dealership and get your car fixed, you're not going to complain that they didn't bill you enough. You're only going to complain if they overbill you. So I think, I'm hoping that that helps us through the process. I was just in D.C. a month and a half ago um, speaking on the Hill, and one of the messages that I took to the Hill was the, Medicare, the Medicaid churn that's, going, that's echoing across the nation right now as redeterminations are coming out. And I wanted to educate the legislation on the Hill saying, 
you're gonna see more patients on payment plans now. You're gonna see higher cost sharing, high, higher co-insurance, higher co-pays, because a lot of these folks are gonna be going off Medicaid and into either employer plans or, God forbid, they're gonna go into the, the marketplace. And I asked the room if they knew what a bronze out-of-pocket annual deductible was. Do any of you know? You, a couple of you do, but not many of us know that. It's, it's, it's $8,000 yeah, a year. It's insane. Think about that in, in terms of your budget, and we all have good jobs, but these are Medicaid patients churning off of, yeah. you know, uh, of Medicaid coverage. Well, I'm not bashing Marketplace. I think Marketplace is great, yeah. but just that awareness that we have a lot of patients that are going to be churning off Medicaid, most likely under the bronze plans, and they're going to have an $8,000, up to an $8,000 out-of-pocket for 2023. Yeah. Um, that's pretty eye-opening. And, and I think that's some of the messaging that our legislative folks at hospitals um, need to get out in your community to your politicians ahead of time and let them know. That's the systemic issues. That's yeah. what they got to know. I, I love, there was a, a CFO of a rural Wisconsin hospital who said to me, yeah, I know, the real difference between the patients in bad debt and the patients in charity care is just how much we know about them. I mean, you know, and he's right. I mean, the majority of bad debt we've seen in, you know, my current organization, they are, in fact, eligible for your charity care. You just, you know, don't know. And partly it's because of times changing. Um, Crow put out a report about hospital bad debt, and the majority of it now is for insured patients. I think that just like two years ago or something is when it hit that mark. And unfortunately, people's assistance things are still even using the presumptive eligibility. A lot of people only use it on their uninsured. So it's almost like the uninsured, you know, you find them, you focus on them, but the insured with these um, crazy deductibles like you just described, you know, those are folks you're not scooping up and they're, you know, they're not gonna apply for your financial assistance because they're like, I'm working, I have insurance, I'm not gonna, you know, people are very proud. You know, often our systems are so focused on either the uninsured or somehow screening out some supposed rich person who's going to try to use the system versus the very large number of people who are actually eligible. And so, yeah, I mean, that's where you got to adjust the systems and tools that you have as well as doing this um, explaining stuff. Yeah, describe for every hospital, I bet you're, you're signing up so many people for Medicaid. You know, that's a good story to put out there um, because it's real, and I feel like folks don't know that. Healthcare Blame Game is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association. Brad Dennison is the director of content. Erica Grotto is executive producer. Additional writing and research are done by Paul Barr and the HFMA editorial team with support from the HFMA policy team and Rick Gundling, HFMA Senior Vice President of Professional Practice. Sound engineering and editing is by Linda Chandler. HFMA's president and CEO is Ann Jordan. I don't know how to click this thing. <laughs>